Hey, missionaries, it's Michael Schweisheimer. Before we start the Mission Story Slam podcast, I just wanted to tell you some really exciting news. We've partnered with Habitat for Humanity Philadelphia for the next Mission Story Slam, which is going to be held on April 14th at The Restore, which is Habitat's discount home improvement store located on Washington Avenue in South Philadelphia. This time, our theme is Where the Heart Is. We're also very happy to let you know that plans are coming together for another Mission Story Salon, which is our version of a Jeffersonian dinner. Details and ticket info will be coming very soon to missionstoryslam.org, as well as our Facebook and Twitter accounts. And now my conversation with the crowd favorite storyteller from Mission Story Slam 2, Dave Davies. You good? All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Speed. Three, two, one. Welcome back to the Mission Story Slam podcast, brought to you by PWP Video. I'm Michael Schweisheimer, the executive producer at PWP Video and Mission Story Slam. We started Mission Story Slam to share the stories of the organizations that we serve at PWP Video. Those include nonprofits, B corporations, triple bottom line companies, and sustainable organizations. Basically, people on a mission to make the world a better place. We gather at Yards Brewing in Philadelphia and pick the names of 10 storytellers out of a hat, and they compete for a $250 donation for their favorite nonprofit. The audience also selects a crowd favorite story for a $100 donation. We videotape those stories for sharing on social media and with friends and supporters. And this podcast is about the story behind those stories. What motivates someone to tell a story in front of an audience? And how did they choose the stories they were going to tell? And what was the experience like? And we also get to learn about the storytellers themselves. Today's guest voice may be familiar to you. Dave Davies' voice has been on the Philadelphia Airways since the mid-80s on WHYY and then KYW News Radio. In 1990, he joined the Philadelphia Daily News as a reporter and columnist where he covered government and politics for 19 years, and he then returned to WHYY. On May 31, 2019, he announced that after covering eight Philadelphia mayor's races, he realized he was now older than the last two winners. He ended his tenure as a senior reporter for WHYY, but continues his work on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Before that announcement, Davies was the crowd favorite winner in September 2018 at Mission Story Slam 2, where the theme was Saving Democracy. Let's listen to how he set up his story. Without further ado, I'd like to call up one of the best storytellers in Philadelphia, my good friend and dear colleague, Dave Davies. Hi, everybody. As Chris said, I'm Dave Davies. I've been covering politics in Philadelphia for, gosh, 35 years. And if there's one experience you should have to understand Philadelphia politics, it is to go to Bob Brady's ward headquarters on Election Day. Bob Brady is the chairman of the Philadelphia Democratic Party, Democratic leader of the, leader of the 40th Ward on Overbrook Avenue. He is a true throwback. He's a six foot three, barrel chested guy, high school education, grew up as a driver for a city councilman and rose to become chairman of the Democratic Party and has served 20 years in Congress. But he is a, he's a relic. He is a head of a political, old time political machine. And in a way, there's a kind of democracy there, right? Kind of a transactional democracy, right? He has 30 committee people in his ward. They turn out the vote for the people he supports. And in return, the constituents can come to the committee people. They can use his clout to get the sewer inlet clean, the street light fixed. But it's the kind of democracy that tends to give us leaders that have are attuned to com- constituent services, but not so good on policy 
and it, need, and it tends to be run on secret deals, and that's not so good. So it needs the energy of people like Jamie and like Ken Weinstein, and it needs to be nudged in the direction of transparency, right, and, and accountability. And that's where journalists come in, which is what I've been doing. So Dave Davies, thank you so much for joining me on the Mission Story Slam podcast. Great to be here, Michael. Here we sit, and Bob Brady has left the house. And I'm wondering if his ward headquarters is still the place to be on Election Day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's great fun. Um, if he knows you and trusts you enough to kind of show you around. But I've been going there over over the years. And, yeah, I mean, Bob Brady is kind of a throwback to an age of machine politics. And, you know, he speaks um, – like a like like the guy that he is, who grew up as a carpenter and made his way into polit into word politics, and then eventually to Congress. He speaks plainly and bluntly, and and he knows the game. Uh, he is a very likable guy, uh, and that's kind of where a lot of his influence comes from: building relationships, and then understanding the levers of power. And kind of those are the things that you know Philly organizational politics is about. You really seem to have like a love-hate relationship with the idea of machine politics. And I'm just curious where that dichotomy comes from. Like I would just think the machine politics, you know, seems like it should just be bad. But It's sort of not like perhaps our idea of Athenian democracy, people sitting around, you know, reasoning together. Um, but it's grown up over time I th and it's endearing in a way in that you have committee people who party – committee people who know their communities and know them well, and then they elect their ward leaders, and then the ward leaders become the power brokers. And it, it is this weird sort of feudal system which can lead to kind of sleazy deals. But on the, the better side of it is that people do – there is some accountability involved. I mean, people the, – the ward leaders and the committee people do need to be somewhat responsive to their to their constituents in order to keep their jobs. Um, you know, I used to, years ago, I mean, one of the other real veterans of uh, machine politics was a state senator named Vincent Fumo from South Philadelphia. You know the name well. He eventually was caught in a huge corruption scandal and went to prison. But I remember when I used to call Vince Fumo's office, um, a woman would answer. She would say, Senator Fumo's office, Jackie speaking. If you call the city revenue department, nobody's going to tell you their name. And that's not an accident. I think Fumo understood, understood that he wanted people to be accountable. If you got treated badly in that office, you would know it was Jackie that mistreated you and she would have to answer for it. There is a way in which patronage is kind of responsive at some basic level to what constituents need or want. The problem is, of course, particularly when people can do things in secret and not be accountable and not have not explain where their money comes from, um, it can lead to corruption. So I originally grew up in the Chicago area. So the idea of machine you, politics. You know that game. <laughs> it's, it has uh, been a background my whole life and even when I moved here. Um, I'm curious. I always, I always think about or hear about democratic machines. And are there Republican machines in a similar way? Well, the interesting thing is that the history is that for decades in the first half of the 20th century, uh, a Republican machine dominated Philadelphia. Um, I'm, this is before my time, but I'm told that certain city employees used to pick up their paychecks at the Republican Party headquarters. Um, you got it, it was it was a patronage system that changed when there were big corruption scandals in the last under the last Republican mayor Bernie Samuel. 
And these Democratic reformers, Richardson, Dilworth, and Joe Clark, came in. A new city charter was crafted, which made a lot more of the jobs civil service as opposed to patronage jobs. And the city kind of entered a different, a reform era of sorts. But the interesting thing is um, people from that era tell me that the people who became the Democratic committee people and ward leaders in that machine had been Republicans a couple of years before. They just switched parties. I mean, so yeah, Republican machines have existed in the past. You don't see them as much today. I will say, when you look at the way the Republican Party of Philadelphia uh, functions, it is very much a mirror image of the Democratic Party. I mean, the ward leaders in areas where there are significant Republican voters have influence and get jobs at places, at public institution that Republicans control. And that's a little bit in the courts and now the Philadelphia Parking Authority. So yeah, there are Republican machines. Oh, the Parking Authority, everybody's, <laughs> everybody's favorite topic. Right. So one of the things in your story that was really fun is, uh, was your impression of Bob Brady. And uh, well, you know what, let's just listen to your Bob Brady impressions from the heart of your story. And in about 2006, I discovered, looking at campaign finance reports, that tens of thousands of dollars were being contributed to a political committee by construction unions, the committee called Unity 2001, which in turn was supporting candidates of Bob Brady's. The weird thing is that the, this committee, Unity 2001, was not filing reports with the state as required by state law. And when I looked at the committee, it did file reports up to 2002, and guess where the address of the committee was? Bob Brady's ward headquarters. I get in touch with Bob and I say, Bob, what's up with this? And he says, it's not my pack. I don't know nothing about that pack. Well, Bob, <laughs> the address is your ward headquarters. The phone number, I know it by heart, 472-4488. That's the ward headquarters. That's where I used to brief Brady. The only employee of the committee is a full-time employee of Brady's congressional office, Anthony Cacciavolano. Bob, what do you say? Not my pack. Don't know nothing about it. Um, I look into this, and by the way, Anthony Cacciavolano, the treasurer of the committee, I called him at home at work. I staked out his house early in the morning, late at, light, late at night. As far as I know, I never caught a look at the guy. Wouldn't talk to me. But a year later, in December 2006, there's this thing called the Pennsylvania Society where Philadelphia politicians descend on the Waldorf Historia Hotel in New York for meetings and receptions. Brady never went. It's not his kind of thing. But that year, because he was getting ready to run for mayor, he was there. He was hanging out in the lobby of the Waldorf. He had all these guys, Brady's guys. And there was a guy sitting in a chair. And I went up to Bob and I said, Bob, that guy over there on the easy chair, who's that? Because I had this feeling it might be Cacciavolano. Brady looks over and says, him? He's the guy you don't know. <laughs> that was all he would tell me. I have to say, uh, that is a very good answer. You got to give Brady that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was just not going to tell me that. And I still to this day don't know whether that was Anthony Cacciavolano in the, in the lobby of the Waldorf. My guess is probably not. I don't know that he would have been going to New York for Pennsylvania Society. But it, it fascinates. I mean, this is not long ago. That is, that is, you know, just over a decade. Is politics still about back rooms and you know, guys you don't know in easy chairs? You know, um, I think less and less. I mean, we still have, the Democratic Party still has a ward system. There are 69 Democratic ward leaders. And you know, we just went through a municipal primary and they are still very influential in down ballot races. And when we're talking about picking city council candidates or the sheriff or 
the register of wills and all that, they, they do have enormous influence in cases where voters don't have a lot of information about the candidates. And so the recommendation of a committeeman, you know, you don't need to get that many votes in a low turnout election to have an impact. But two things have changed. One is that I, I think there are, th there's more independence among a lot of the ward leaders. They tend not to act in concert with the party. That's been developing over decades. And uh, the, the Democratic city, city committee endorsement of a given office, say sheriff, is not necessarily going to carry all 69 ward leaders. It may not carry 49 ward leaders. It may not carry 39. So they're more independent. And you are having this, this fascinating development of more wards becoming what they call open wards. That is to say, wards in which the endorsement decisions are not handed down from the ward leader, but voted upon by the committee people in that ward. The first and second wards in South Philadelphia today, which are traditionally machine wards, Jimmy Tyune is a name people will remember. He used to head the first ward. They're now in the hands of people who are democratic socialists openly um, because you've had this influx of younger, more progressive voters in the area. And particularly after the Trump election, they're energized and there, there are organizations. There's an organization called Reclaim Philadelphia, which grew out of the Bernie Sanders movement in 2016. They're organized and they've had an impact. So you're seeing more, more wards where, where decisions are not made just by the ward leader. And you know, it's interesting, Michael, because I've, I've thought about this thing like, I mean, if, you, if you're an active committee person in, you know, pick a ward, you know, the 39th, the 40th. Why would you want to let your ward leader make the decision for you on who we're all going to support? And I was thinking about it. And it's sort of like you enter politics and you understand that you and the ward are a team, right? You, you, you come into it early and you kind of, you, you learn the ropes, you do some constituent services, you build relationships. And then over time, what you realize is that if you as a ward act together, you have clout. I mean, you can get something done for your neighborhood. If everybody is going on their own way and a judicial candidate or a candidate for city council who comes to your ward is going to have to convince 50 people individually that he deserves their support, that's going to be a harder thing to do. You're, that, that candidate is going to pay less attention to your ward. If the, if the candidate knows by convincing that ward leader, he's got you all acting together and you work hard together, it adds up to cloud. And so I think that's the old history of it. Again, it lends itself to, to shady deals. I don't think it's a particularly good way of doing things, but I think that's the history of it. And I think now you are seeing uh, more independence among the ward leaders and more wards where the committee people themselves are going to make up their own minds. Your thinking is that it comes from access to the easier lever leverage of power so that if you can, if you know that a ward is really under control, great, that's worth some time. But yeah, if you've got a sit down with each and every committee person and you still don't know what the outcome's going to be, that's, right. that's a big investment. It, you know, if you, can, if you could either convince the ward leader or make a deal with the ward leader and know you can count on them. Somebody once said that the definition of honesty in Philadelphia politics is once bought, stays bought. <laughs> so um, and I don't know that you buy ward leader support, but, but it does, you know, money does make a difference. People, politicians, candidates do give ward leaders money for them to use for, you know, for street operations that day. I think it has an impact. And then it also, it depends upon like alliances. When Vince Fumo was powerful, he would have connections to 15 or 20 ward leaders. And if the Fumo organization decided they were gonna support somebody, that was a big chunk of power. When things don't get done at the corner, on your street, on your block, it's amazing 
how that little micro-political climate can impact a congressional election if you just let it fester long enough. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. I was on Radio Times on WHYY, Marty Moss Cohen's show, after the FUMO conviction. And there was this discussion about whether, you know, we had, there was another reporter saying everything FUMO did was based on criminality. And I said, not so fast, because in fact, there are, I've heard a lot of people tell stories of Vince doing the right thing just because he thought it was the right thing to do and bringing the considerable technical resources and political clout of his office to bear. Uh, and in cases where people would say, I don't know why I did it, but it, it was the right thing to do and it helped. And somebody called in from, I think it was the Society Hill Civic Association, and told a story about Vince coming in when they really needed some help and making a difference. And the guy said, and you know, we were waiting for the ask. We knew at some point he would want something. Never came. So it's all complicated. <laughs> um, that's, 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 I guess that's the kind of thing that makes reporting interesting to me over, over time is that um, most people are not one thing. I mean, most people are complicated. So we talked about this democratic history machine. You bring up uh, reporting. Um, you know, the way you told your story about staking out Cacciavallano's uh, house or being in these crazy rooms at the Waldorf or digging through the, I'm sure, exciting campaign filing records, uh, it, it really sounds like the, uh, the sort of the hard scrabble reporting that you, know, you see in the movies. And um, I'm wondering if reporting is evolving in the way like, the, like our politicians might be. I mean, work is work, and you, know, you can look things up on Google now, but journalism, has it, has it changed that much in this digital era? Well, it's changed, of course. I mean, the biggest change is that its funding sources have, you know, have shrunk. I mean, and so it's really harder and harder to pay people to take time, to take enough time to do in-depth stories, and particularly people who are experienced. I mean, it's, you know, when I got in the business, you had a real prospect of getting a family-sustaining job out of it. Uh, I did. I mean, I got a union job, and I, and it worked for me. And when young people come to me now and say, should I do this? I'm not sure what to tell them. I say, do do it. And then if some, at some point you can't keep doing it, you'll walk away with valuable skills. But it's a really important thing to do. You know, social media, of course, has changed reporting so much. I mean, there's no news cycle anymore. Things are constantly breaking. And sometimes I'm, I'm concerned that reporters spend too much time looking at each other on Twitter. And I think this is particularly true of national political reporting. I mean, they really... They're so frantically worried about whether Politico is going to have some story that they, they spend too much time looking at that rather than just saying, I'm going to find this and burrow into it. Um, and the story that I did there about – that I told here about this committee in Brady's ward that was you know, flagrantly avoiding its, its reporting obligations really came because I had the time to burrow into some records. And then once I found something that I thought was real, to spend the time – the other time reporting, you know talking to the officials, trying to find the, chair, the, the treasurer of the committee and all of that. Well, you know what? Let's play the part that uh, talks about the results of that reporting from the PAC. Here's what's interesting. What I discovered as I looked into this was that in 2002, the McCain-Feingold law has passed, which imposed new limits on federal officials. Bob Brady is in Congress. He is not allowed to have a political committee that accepts $10,000 contributions. It is illegal. This is now a real problem. It's not some little thing with state law. When this became apparent, I suddenly get a hand-delivered letter to my office from Richard Sprague, Uber lawyer of Philadelphia, telling me, Dave Davies, you are preparing a false and defamatory 
story about Bob Brady, and if you proceed with this, you are in big trouble. That meant that our company lawyers got involved, and so when I wrote the story, and the, the lead was very clear that up to 2002, when this federal law was passed, this committee, headquarters at which was located at Brady's Ward headquarters, was filing reports. Suddenly now that Brady can't do that anymore, the money's still flowing, but he stops filing reports. He's now, it's a problem with federal law. Um, I make this clear in the lead. The company lawyer looks at it and he says, you know, the problem with that is when I read the story is I can't help but feel that it's, it's, you're saying Brady is doing something wrong. And I'm saying, yes, yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. The story got watered down. Brady realized the jig was up. He hired a lawyer which filed amended reports so that all of the money was accounted for. And the story, I think, led the paper, and it embarrassed Brady a little bit, but it wasn't, didn't have the impact that it might have. There was one little piece of, there was a discrepancy in some of the reports, and I pointed it out to this lawyer who politely said, yeah, we're going to file amended report within two weeks on that. And I ran into Brady in the hallway at City Hall a month later, and I said, Bob, you know, your lawyer, he said he was going to file that amended report. It hasn't been done yet. He says, yeah, I, they will. And they looked at me sideways, and he says, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And maybe he's right that a lot of people don't care, but that little effort and that little embarrassment meant that that one committee is now telling a piece of the truth that was hidden from the public before and it's worth it. Thanks. So the theme of that night at Mission Story Slam was saving democracy. And clearly, uh, journalism is enshrined in the Constitution as a pillar of our democracy. But I really, your story is interesting. It doesn't talk about the whole pillar. It's just that you know, even though you followed the money, this wasn't all the president's men. Uh, you didn't take down Bob Brady with this story or the Democratic machine. But the point that I took away was that uh, just about the idea that, that sticking to it with, through journalism can help to keep our representatives honest. Right. You know, it's a, a modest and gentle corrective. I mean, you still need, you know, the big, deep investigative stories that expose awful things and maybe sends people to jail or results in major reforms. But, but I think you also need these, these regular corrections. You know, it's interesting. The city now has a really effective ethics board. Um, but for, for a long time, they didn't. And the main enforcer of integrity in politics in the city was the FBI. If it's the only tool you have for enforcing integrity in politics, a federal investigation takes typically years. You know, people are dragged before the grand jury. Some of them get, like, tainted, even though they may not have done anything. And so, you, you know, the feds end up making big cases, and people end up getting sent away for a long time. And... It's important to do that for people who are, are real scoundrels. Of course. But we also need like more regular, modest corrections to people's behavior. If people are just in the habit, for example, if council members, if, if, if elected officials are in the habit of having their government staff do politics on, on their own, on company time, on, on the public's time, that's a bad thing. It gives them huge advantage over, advantages over um, you know, challengers, it wastes taxpayer resources, and that used to be the case. Uh, the investigations in the, at the state level 
convicted people of that kind of misconduct. But that, what you have now, what you have now is the city ethics board that regularly looks at stuff like this, that regularly looks at campaign finance reports. So, uh, you know, a pop, Candidates for office know now they have to really disclose things that they didn't used to. And ward leaders have to. I mean, ward committees have to. And you, anybody can go and pick up those reports. And I do feel like um, municipal elections are cleaner and more transparent than they were in the 80s when I was doing this, when people just did whatever they want. Money just disappeared. It's not a radical transformation of democracy, but I think it does – it keeps people a little more honest and maybe attracts a little, a little bit more public-spirited, um, you know, aspirant for office. You know, it's interesting if you look at the city's uh, state house delegation, say, 25 years ago. Most of them were ward leaders. Uh, most of their their background was in organizational politics. And if you look at them now, there are a lot more people who ran independent races. They're more educated. Many are attorneys. Many had lives before they got into elected office. This and, is really good news. Yeah, I just yeah, I, I think they are they are on the whole a more a sharper, more public spirited bunch than they were thirty years ago. And I kind of think it's probably related to some of these moves to just make things a little more transparent. But on the other hand, thinking about the evolution of journalism and the fracturing of it, and just the fact that you had the time to dig into the details. And I'm, I'm not negating the ethics oversight. That's very important. Um, but I worry that with there being so many channels that either there's redundant work on the same, you know, multiple reporters at multiple channels researching exactly the same little bits of information, the same breadcrumbs, um, or that there's just not enough people to be assigned to really hold people accountable on those small redirections you're talking about. Yeah, it's a real worry. I mean, you know, the, the inquirer just went through another round of staff reductions. Um, and there's no doubt that it's a smaller paper than it used to be, and there's less time for all kinds of work. I mean, daily, you know, you know daily beat reporting, which is really important because that leads to good enterprise reporting. Um, fortunately, in public radio, we've done pretty well. Our, our membership base is growing, and we have a much larger newsroom than we used to. And I'm telling you, they are great young reporters. I mean, when I stepped down as senior reporter, um, it was partly for personal reasons, and I also felt like it really is time to hand, hand off the baton. These are great people, and I'm still there, and I occasionally give them sources and tips and ideas and look at their copy, uh, which is a role that I, that I really enjoy because they're great people. But I do think there are great young people get it, getting into it. But yeah, it's a concern that as a whole, the media don't have the resources that we need or that we used to have to be aggressive. Yeah. Speaking of aggressive, I was looking around uh, with some of the articles around your announcing your retirement as a senior reporter. And uh, I found the Max Marin Billy Penn article where uh, he actually headlined his announcement with uh, aggressively fair Philly <laughs> government reporter Dave Davies retires. Yeah. And I noticed that within the article, one of the, uh, one of the quotes that he actually had gone out and collected was he talked to Bob Brady. And Brady explained why he always returned your phone calls with one word, which was fair. Right. At this time, do you think that, uh, you know, as so many journalists are being accused of the whole fake news fascination and just all these awful things, um, can, can being aggressively fair help in this fight to, uh, to save democracy? Yeah, I think you, 
You have to be. And it's, you know, it's, it's really a matter of being thorough. And it, it does trouble me sometimes that some young journalists comes up, come up that have not had the experience of being in a newsroom. I mean, I was lucky that I was around people who'd done it for a long time and I could come to them and talk about a story before. Um, you know, was it ready? What else do I need to do here? Uh, and, and some folks get an angle, get an idea, and just go with it and just they don't do enough to, to talk to people. You know, I, when I wrote columns, when I was going to whack somebody, you always, always have to call them and say, hey, this is what I see. Tell me what I'm wrong. And there's two reasons to do that. One is it's fair to the person that you're about to whack. More important is that it is fair to your readers or listeners. You know, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, it's rare when I call, quote, the other side uh, in doing reporting a story. That may be the other side of, you know, the first person that I've spoken to. It's rare that I have those conversations that I learn things that I didn't know, and it affects my thinking. And I, and I do worry that we in, there's, we in the media, apart from just not having the resources we need, too much of the media, particularly cable news, is just so devoted to pushing one point of view, and if you're, you know, if you're in the habit of kind of cherry picking facts to fit your perspective, you're not being, you know, you're going to miss stuff. You're just going to, your story is going to lack context. It's going to, it's not going to be as enriching. Well, I mean, if you hear an extreme side of each story, when the reality is probably somewhere in the middle, anyhow, right? right? You're not really defining, you're not really defining the truth because you're only looking at the fringes, right? Right. Something that I find very frustrating and why I personally cannot handle that uh, cable yeah. news cycle. It's funny. I mean, I, I always think of a moment in my career when I'd start, you know, I began at the Daily News as a reporter and then I started writing columns. And the editor then, Zach Stahlberg, I hope you don't, wouldn't mind my telling this story, but I, um, he took me out to lunch and he says he, want, he wanted to talk about how to get more edge in my columns. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know. But I, I just have this thing about being careful and fair, you know, to, to you know, people. You know, I mean, I can kind of point out what they've done that I don't like, but I just have that kind of focus. I mean, that's kind of this thing I believe in. And he kind of listened to me and then kind of, kind of laughed and shook his head and said, that's really a terrible quality. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was joking. I mean, he was speaking from the perspective of the editor of a tabloid where – you wind up and you swing, right? I mean, that's what what that's you know, tabloids are papers that are impulse buys, and they do have to hit hard. And I certainly feel like I took plenty of hard shots, but um, well, you did there's just always talk that about tension. whacking somebody. So yeah. I'm I'm going to be pretty sure right. that that must have been no, a hard yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah, and it's not like you go out to whack somebody, but if if the story is painful to them, so be it. You did end up winning the crowd favorite award that night at the Mission Story Slam, right. and I'm just curious. Uh, you chose 1812 Productions, the Philadelphia Theater Company, to give your uh, donation to. And I'm, what's the connection for you to 1812 Productions? Well, I, I, en I enjoy their annual politics show that, that, what is it, this was the year that is or that was the year that is? Oh, the annual one. Not yeah, the, the annual Not the weekly. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I also worked with uh, Jennifer Childs, who I guess is the artistic director there, um, Somehow we got funding at WHYY to do a series of – there were four videos in which I explained how Philadelphia politics worked. Hmm. And the, the conceit was that her character Patsy, you know, who lives at – was it 6th and Shunk or so, or so on? Um, 
uh, this sort of kind of stereotypical South Philadelphia character, asks me questions about, you know, what wards and the, the warden committee system is or what campaign finance is. And then we do this sort of back and forth thing. It was scripted. And she did a brilliant job of it. Um, you can find them on YouTube if, if, you, if you Google my name and Patsy and whatever. Um, they're pretty funny because, I mean, because she's such a pro. And that was partly the sense of personal connection. And so I thought, you know what? Let's, yeah. I didn't count on this. Let's, let's throw, them, throw them a little support. Well, it's a great choice. So, um, so you're only a couple months into retiring from being the senior reporter. Is there some kind of withdrawal period from political reporting? Oh, is yeah. it weird watching 2020 uh, lead up and not covering politics? Yeah, it is. It's, um, you know, it's been my identity for decades. Uh, and it's, it's a little weird and disconcerting to sort of not have that identity. Fortunately, I do come to WHYY most days. I'm, my desk is now in the fresh air area, and my work is doing long-form interviewing and hosting for that show, which is a different animal from reporting. But I'm still in the same room with all the reporters, and I still follow what they do. But yeah, yeah, I feel the itch. Uh, and maybe I'll get back to some freelance reporting if opportunities can arise. All right. Well, listen, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come down here and uh, talk about your experience at the Mission Story Slam with us. My pleasure. It's uh, important work. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So I'm really appreciative that Dave Davies came down to Indy Hall to record this podcast episode with us. And we'll be back soon to bring more interviews with storytellers from Mission Story Slam. Don't forget to check out missionstoryslam.org, as well as our Facebook and Twitter feeds, for details about the next Mission Story Slam with Habitat for Humanity on April 14th, as well as our new event, Mission Story Salon. The Mission Story Slam podcast is produced by Dave Winston and brought to you by PWP Video. We are video with a mission. Find us at pwpvideo.com. We'll be back with another episode in about a month. Until then, I'm Michael Schweisheimer, and I look forward to sharing the next story behind the story with you soon. Mm-hmm.